The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Episode 10 of the Murder Shelf Book Club, where today we will be discussing the second half of The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. I sat on the living room floor, huddled with an afghan that Mom made for me. I stared at the floor while scenes of the good times and the bad times played in my mind like a desolate slideshow. I had prayed for so long to know, and now the answer killed a part of me. I didn't learn until later that Ted would be charged with murdering Kimberly Leach, a 12-year-old girl the same age as Molly. I thought of Ted's assurances that I need never worry about me or Molly. I didn't understand Ted Bundy, and I never will. part of a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and we just love discussing our true crime together. We decided to turn that true crime fascination and reading of true crime into a podcast so that we can share it with you. Each month, we review and discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. During our first episodes of the month, we review what we've pulled off the shelf. We don't want to give you that boring linear timeline, but we do like to follow in these steps of the author to give you the story from their point of view. And in our second cast, which has ended up being the last part of our series, we pull a little bit more on those wayward threads in the book that completely fascinated us and take a deeper dive. First, we just have a little bit of housekeeping before we move on. Uh, We did have one of our Lizzie theorists, David Wolf, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. He called Murder Shelf Book Club a top drawer podcast. And he goes on to say, this is a superior podcast. I would highly recommend it for the excellent content and accuracy of the information provided. The hosts are well-spoken, well-prepared, and interact with the audience on platforms such as Facebook. This is a must for the murder enthusiast. Check out the Lizzie Borden episodes if you are a Borden fan. You will want to listen to these several times over. Well, thank you, David. Yeah. We're so so glad that you loved the episode, and we definitely appreciated you sending us your theory on whodunit. And we did go over that in one of our episodes on Lizzie. So go back and check out those episodes. We certainly appreciate everyone for taking the time to leave us a review. Yeah, we do love the reviews. That's really sweet. Yeah, so as always, send us your thoughts, feelings, theories on any of our previous series. And we're happy to incorporate those into our episodes. Absolutely. Well, we are moving through our series on The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. This is a different sort of Ted Bundy story, told through the eyes of the woman who loved him and shared her life with him. During 1974, when women began to disappear in and around the Seattle area, Liz had a gut feeling that something was wrong with Ted. Trust you that? Oh, yeah. She documents her struggle to control her alcoholism, attempting to do the right thing by bringing Ted to the attention of the police, even though she believes her fears may be misaligned. Liz's story is heart-wrenching and often maddening at times. 
She wants to live a life where she can be taken care of, to be the wife of a man, to become the mother of more children, and unfortunately, she chose the wrong man. Now, don't forget, our food and wine pairing for the series is a smoked salmon dip. The recipe is up at our blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com, and we paired this dip with a 2019 Gateway Vino Verde Rosé from Wine Awesomeness. This pairing is an absolute stunner and perfect for springtime and enjoying with your book club on the patio. Oh, yeah, so now if this wind just goes away. What's with the wind? I don't know. We have more high wind warnings, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. We're going to pick back up on February 23rd, 1976, as Ted's trial for the kidnapping of Carol Durant begins in Salt Lake City. He waived his right to a jury trial, so Ted thinks he's the, the greatest lawyer ever. He waived his right to that jury trial, thinking that a single judge would be less critical than a jury of his peers. Ted asked Liz not to come to the trial unless her name popped up on a list of witnesses for the prosecution, and mm-hmm. he didn't want her to be on the stand. Kim Andrews, though, testified as one of Ted's girlfriends. <sighs> and yeah, we know about her already, but oh, yeah. to Liz's she learned that Kim had spent a lot of time in Ted's apartment and never saw anything that could be connected to the attempted kidnapping and assault on Carol Duran. You know, I understand this is strategy, but I really understand Liz is upset. We'll see. There's a lot of things to be upset about that she's going to learn. Oh, yeah. Especially when she's not there. Yeah. Or even when she is there. <laughs> yeah. So, during the trial, Carol Duran was a really powerful witness on the stand. She recalled the kidnapping attempt in astonishing detail and clarity, but she couldn't quite identify Ted as the culprit. I don't know about you. I've never been in this situation, but if you're frightened out of your damn mind and you're trying to get out of that car, would you really remember what that person looks like other than the fact that you just need to get the hell out of there? Do you remember I was telling you that I had been punched in the face by two of my students? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who they are or what they look like to this day. This is just getting punched in the face. I'm not in a car with someone struggling with me, trying to really hurt me. They were fighting with each other. So I understand. Yeah. I wouldn't even think that the car that she jumped in after she got out of Ted's car, I don't even think she probably remembers those two who picked her up. Really? The Walsh's, I think. Throughout his whole ordeal, people were listening, obviously, but as soon as he was done, that's when Liz decided to fly out of Salt Lake because the defendant is always usually the last witness She's probably not going to be called. Yeah, the defendant's usually last. Well, of course, the next day, Ted's lawyer calls Liz and advises that Ted wants her at the courthouse right away. He just wants her at his side. And what would you do? I would, of course, jump up, get ready, and go be by his side. Her man. As they waited for the verdict, Liz went with Ted back to his lawyer's office, and he didn't introduce her to anyone and left her kind of sitting there, the odd one out, unkept, just out of the shower. And of course, Kim Andrews is there. She, of course, is all put together because she knew she was getting up and going to be there in the morning. And she's giving Liz the cold stare. Later, they went to Ted's school and visited with some of his friends. And guess what? Ted doesn't introduce her to any of them either. Liz is just sitting there like a bump on the log. I'm glad she finally did say something to him, though, because, I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah, he does finally get the hint, and he introduces her to a different group of friends when they went to a bar to have a drink. 
someone, you know, asks Liz, how long have you known Ted? And Liz says, oh, we've been together since 1969. And the friend responds, odd, he's he's never mentioned you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> it's a good thing it was a bar, not a restaurant, and there was no utensils on the table. After Ted's 100,000th apology that he's ever, ever made to Liz, the next time that they go to a different place, Ted introduces Liz as his fiance. Oh, how nice. Oh, wouldn't it have been great if she kind of looked at him and said, fiance? Oh, Ted, don't you wish I'd said yes? Unfortunately, she doesn't have the balls to do that. She doesn't. The fact that he called. She's relishing in that moment, but I just, I, oh, you know, in that parallel universe. uh. She's she's gonna get him with some words, though. She does. She does. She does have her time. I just, I wanted it to be then, but we don't get what we want. Okay. So that weekend, as they continue to wait for the, the verdict, Ted just wants to get drunk. It might be his last few days of freedom. Liz's parents are horrified that she's standing by him. I mean, why, for God's sakes? Come on, after all the shit that she said? Yeah, she's the one who thought he was committing murders, and then he gets arrested, and he's being on trial, and now she's supporting him, and it's a mess. Ted turns into this scared little coward that he's actually always been deep down inside. Bullying. Yeah. Hold me. I'm scared. Liz complies, but, you know, feels herself beginning to unravel even more as she continues to feel guilty that it was she who had done this to him. Yeah, it's her fault. It's her fault, right? On Monday, the verdict is in, and Ted is found guilty. Surprise! All Liz can do and say over and over is, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is her worst nightmare, because she is the one that got Ted convicted. Yeah, it's all her fault, I guess. <sighs> anyway, on the plane back to Seattle, Liz keeps drinking. It's just what she's going to revert to, unfortunately. And nothing can really stem the flow of alcohol at this point for her. It, she's guilty of the murder of the man that she loves because he's never going to survive in prison. He's a free bird. Oh, boy. Sarcasm, I'm sorry. But Mrs. Bunny sits with her on the plane and tells her the story of Ted's illegitimacy date basically. So in choosing to make a new life for herself and her son, similar to what Liz and Molly had done a few short years ago, packing up from mm-hmm. Ogden and moving out to Seattle, Mrs. Bundy actually did the same thing. In On the East Coast, they moved all the way out west of Tacoma, Washington. And that was where she met Johnny Bundy, her husband. They got married, and they had lived contentedly ever since. And she told Liz that she never felt the need to discuss it with Ted, that she thought he just remembered. He was five years old at the time. That was a big move. He should have just remembered. Well, we know that he didn't, or he just says that he doesn't. But perhaps that was part of the issue, the lack of open discussion within the family. I I don't know if that's a sign of the time, perhaps. Yeah, I think maybe that it's wishful thinking on Louise's part. Children really don't develop long-term memory until after the age of five. So he was right there on that brink. Memory is encoded in language. I mean, if you think about things, you're using language in your head. So until they have enough vocabulary, they don't build memory like adults do. So if you think about it, if you have a sibling who's a year or two younger, try to remember when they were born. You probably can't. You may have been told stories about it, but you yourself probably can't pull up that imagery. 
But if you have one who was born when you were five, six, seven years old, you probably recall it vividly going to the hospital, you know, seeing the baby, the baby coming home from the hospital with mom. So Louise may have really just been avoiding a difficult subject, admitting that Ted's biological father had abandoned them and that she had been schnookered by this guy. I mean, you don't really want to admit that. I mean, at least she seemed to have found a good man in Johnny Bundy to take care of her and her son. Well, I think you're looking to the future and you're building a new family and you're going forward. Why would you want to go backward? Let's face it, this is a time when women gave babies up for adoption. Louise is kind of rare in keeping him to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Back in Seattle, when they finally get there, a probation officer, Donald Hall, calls Liz to write a pre-sentence report on Ted. So he hasn't been sentenced yet. He's just been convicted. Right. And he asks if she still thought he was guilty. Well, she never flat out said that, that he was actually guilty. So she told Hall that Officer Thompson's report, remember Officer Thompson from episode one? Oh, you're jealous, aren't you? Yeah. I hate him, but this was her time to kind of get back at him and said his report was full of inaccuracies and just that they had a slanted view about what she had said about Ted. Mm. And Hull continues to haunt Liz and Ted. He tells Ted that he spoke with Carol DeBaranja multiple times and that she was sure he was the one, 90% sure to be exact. And this is after pulling out photos pulling him out of a lineup, like 90% sure after going through such a traumatic experience, you know. But Ted was dumbfounded. Like, how could she remember me? What, did you change your part the next day for a picture? I mean, the man changing his part, it looks like a completely different human being. I rant. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, go ahead. Donald Hall referred to Angie, Liz's friend, as an old girlfriend of Ted's which actually sent Liz into a fury. How dare she call herself one of Ted's girlfriends? Obviously, this is a mistake, and Angie was horrified. Like, not only because Liz is mad at her, but she didn't want to be connected to Ted in that way. Oh, good lord, no. She didn't want that. No, no, no. Oh, my God. Guy. So, Liz says at this point, My life has changed so much, I couldn't believe it was still my life. Now, she started seeing a counselor thank God, for her drinking and about this guilt that she continues to to feel. She's sticking by Ted, but Ted is the Ted. The newspapers, the courts, they all kept referring to Ted's girlfriend being at the trial. Well, Liz, Ted's girlfriend, is in Seattle. Kim Andrews was in Salt Lake. So who are they referring to, Ted? Ted. Who, Ted? Ted. She she accepted Ted for who he was, and for the thousandth millionth time, I put up with it because I love him and I'm stupid. Poor Poor Liz. Ted writes to her regarding Kim. If she had replaced you, I would tell you. If I loved her and no longer you, I would tell you. But she hasn't, and I don't. Once again, telling her in letters. His words don't make Liz feel any better. Once again, she's letting him tell her about her life instead of Liz deciding how she will live her life. We can't change others. We can only change how we react to others. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yes, it is about time that Liz comes to face facts about her drinking, and not facing facts about Ted quite yet anyway. One of the women in her counseling group suggests that she goes to Alcohol Anonymous. And while Liz doesn't think of herself as an alcoholic, 
She notes that her hands shake, her back aches, that she's just rotten without alcohol. And, you know, maybe this woman has a point. She relies on alcohol to get her through the day, as she can no longer rely on Ted to give her the validation she needs. He was happy when she confided in him that she was going to get sober. He egged her on. He encouraged her to keep up with it. And she's still fantasizing about the life that they would have together, maybe after the withdrawals. Maybe? Maybe. She's going through withdrawals. She's having delusions. I mean, he still hasn't been sentenced yet, but she still thinks that they're going to have a life together after he gets out of prison, which is very, very sad. Yes. So when Ted was about to actually be sentenced, the last letter that he wrote to her hit her like a ton of bricks. He knows that he most likely will never get out of prison based on everything that's against him. And he says to her, I have loved you exclusively for years, meaning he's had other women, but he only loves her. And this is paraphrased from that letter. She had given him life and that it was she who had taught him what it was to be a man. The lover who showed him sexuality and the mother who gave him the fulfillment of raising a child. And he finished the letter by saying, I shall love you forever and forever in my dreams. I shall love you with every long-haired beauty I see. I shall love you with every clear blue sky. I will love you till my last breath. There can never be any goodbyes for you and I. No parting, because we are always with each other in spirit. No goodbyes, just I love you. Guiltometer must have freaking broke on Liz for that one. I just, I want to punch him in the face. Every single letter in this book... I have wanted to punch him in the face because there's definitely something to be said about using words, but then also being able to write, like being on the phone with someone. You can say kind of whatever you want because you can't actually physically see that person. So it's a lot easier to say these things, but he is just laying it on thick for her. Yeah. He's just trying to take more glue, bind her tighter, keep her closer because when you're in jail, you need somebody on the outside. Uh That's all. What about Kim Andrews? Yeah. Well, she's another one. Love to hear her side of things. Exactly, right? Look her up. But after this last letter, she finally does cave in and she goes to AA. And after years of not thinking she had a problem, girls face facts. Good. Good. This is definitely a positive step in the right direction to reclaim her life, but she's scared and understandably so. This is a huge deal to admit that you have a problem and to face it. Huge. And so even in the group setting, she's still a little bit terrified. And on a recommendation from another group member, she decides to call this older woman who has a lot of experience with new people coming in. And this woman's name is Pat. And she asks Liz, how long have you been sober? And Liz says, only about seven weeks, which probably seems like forever for her at this point, seven Mm -hmm. weeks. And Pat tells Liz, you couldn't possibly hope to feel together and sane all the time this soon. Basically, you need more time to heal. And even now, Liz will say that she owes Pat her life. You need that kind of support when you're first trying to do this. It's the first time you're starting to see things without that alcohol glaze over you. And to actually feel things without that numbing that comes into it. And we know obviously during this time it was so heavy, but even in the good times, alcohol was a big part of their relationship. Well, that's how she became the not shy Liz. That's how she became Mm -hmm. fun and sociable. Listen, uh, so many people have done that, that fall into that. I get it. I really do. My heart goes out to her. It really does. All right. So six months after Ted is convicted, 
Liz is on her way to see him at the Utah State Prison. It had been a long, hard road just to be able to go visit him. Now, there's a, a rule that male prisoners could only have one unmarried female on the list of cleared visitors. And guess who Ted listed? Mm, let me guess. Kim Andrews is that visitor. Huh. Yeah. Ted would tell Liz that it's only about proximity and that he needs the people who are closest to him as he just can't survive. Did he? Save the dramatics, Ted. Sounds like my grandma. Her, her favorite grandchild was the one that lived 10 blocks down the street from her. It's only proximity. <laughs> it's only proximity. It's only proximity. Who you are. Just, just geography. But now that she's sober, it seems that she could think a bit more clearly about Ted. And yes, she loves him greatly, but she still wanted him to suffer for how he's making her feel. And guess what? She wants revenge. So for Liz, it's a relief to be mad at somebody else besides herself for a change, even if it's the man she put in prison. She's realizing, but it's still her fault. Yep, yep. She's getting there. This isn't going to happen overnight. This has been years that this has been going on. So when she arrives at the prison, Ted is happy to see her. And she describes him as handsome as ever, unlike the picture he's painted in his recent letters. They talk about the new Liz and how proud he is of her. And he asks her if she started dating. And she answers truthfully, but holds back on the fact that the first guy she had gone out with since Ted, she slept with. I'm sorry she did that. That She didn't tell Ted. Not that she slept with the guy. But I'm sorry she should have told Ted. She wanted it to be something cold used to get back at Ted and to make him feel jealous. However, the whole incident left her feeling dirty and irresponsible, so she never said anything about it. We'll flashback back to the first time that Ted and her met, about the night at her apartment, and how she felt about that. She didn't even want to see him ever again. And look where we are now. Yep, exactly. The same response. She doesn't just lightly go to bed with somebody, but she did. Yes. And, and she really did want to use it. But I think she did it to hurt him, and then in retrospect, she hurt herself. Yes. So, guess what? Ted doesn't like being locked up. No. Really? He's like, yeah. He's like a wolf who needs territory to roam. He's a predator, even though no one really knows the extent of that predatory nature yet. And we know, nobody else knows, but that need to kill was bubbling. He told Liz that he would never become accustomed to prison life and that he would not become a quote-unquote inmate. He was not a criminal. Mm -hmm. And he plays to her sense of guilt. He's not sleeping. He's abandoned. He said, I can't live in here. Something's going to happen soon. Dun, dun, dun. And even then, she knew what he was talking about. That was escape. She knew he'd been plotting it, although he never really said it outright. But it was very apparent in the letters that he wrote to her. She knows him. She does know him. She may not know all of him, but she knows him better than anybody else. That he's plotting escape. She probably thinks that he's never going to get away with it, though. So she doesn't say anything about it. But she leaves the holding area and she starts heading back to her parents and she feels that urge to drink bubbling up inside of her. And even while she's feeling this way, she goes to the site of Carol Durant's abduction, trying to retrace her steps and try to try to see what that must have felt like for her and try to see it in her mind of Ted being the responsible party. And when that didn't take the edge off, I mean, why would it? She was honestly afraid to go back to her parents' house. And she wasn't necessarily afraid of drinking, 
It was more of the fact that she was going to take one of her father's gun and pull the trigger. Oh, jeez. Herself. Oh, good and lord. So she ends up calling Pat, her AA mentor, and it gives her the strength to get back to her parents' house in Ogden. But she knew that when the time came, she wasn't going to go back to the prison as Ted. Good. Good. Good choice, Liz. Stay strong. She does not go back and see Ted on that last day in Salt Lake. She sends him a note letting him know that she can't make it. Surprise, it either gets to him late or he's going to attempt to manipulate her further into her own warped sense of guilt. I would have liked to say goodbye to you in person, kiss you one last time. Please, Liz, please, please don't leave me this way. I thought Sunday was the most demoralizing day of my life. Sunday. I I think finally recognized how powerless and weak I am. I don't know how many times I've peeped in my mouth since we started this series. <laughs> I hate him. I hate it. He's just such an evil bastard. In October, a year after he was arrested and charged with attempted kidnapping, Ted was additionally charged with the first-degree murder up in Colorado in the disappearance and death of Karen Campbell. She had disappeared from Aspen on January 12, 1975. After a series of convincing letters from Ted, Liz didn't know what to believe. He claimed someone was out to get him. Sure, the police could plant evidence, but why would they? Why would they? Yeah, why? This is making a murderer. Yeah, really. (laughs) Right. The evidence being a brochure that Ted had on him when he got off the plane to visit Liz back in January of 75. He said someone on the plane gave it to him. Not an unlikely scenario, as Ted was known to strike up conversations with random strangers. But, again, why the heck was Ted in Colorado when he shouldn't have been? One of those long drives? One of eight-hour drives, you know? Yeah. Just to clear his head. Mm-hmm. Liz would continue to move forward, but only to be derailed by Ted's love letters as they continuously keep coming. He definitely knew what to say to make her feel needed to lead her back to his camp. He's pushing her buttons. He is manipulating her as usual. Listen, he was supportive of her going to AA. He's proud of her. So he knows how to set her up for this manipulative backlash and to snap that tendril to pull her right back into self-loathing and guilt. And then he rewards her by saying he's proud. And then here comes the next guilt trip. So it's just vintage Ted. I know. And it makes me feel terrible just knowing what's going to happen next. For some reason, that Christmas... She decides that when she goes to visit her family in Utah, she's going to go see Ted. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be moved to Colorado after the first of the year to stand trial for murder. So she probably still feels that sense of guilt, I'm sure. But it's like a switch is flipped when she goes to see him. She is hanging all over this dude, like kissing him. They're kissing each other. They're able to kind of just hang out with each other, ask for more time. But... She even says when the the time came to leave, it wasn't as hard as the first time. So I guess that's okay. Even though she kind of let this guard down and was kind of acting like nothing was wrong, that he was going to be going to trial for murder. Right. But but it was just like back when he was a free man awaiting to be sentenced. I don't know what she was thinking. But when he's moved to Glenwood Springs in Colorado, he has access to a phone this time. He didn't have access to that in Salt Lake. (sighs) And so he calls Liz every week sometimes multiple times a week and she wrote in the book i like talking to him but i felt weighted down by the calls i knew the satisfying way we connected robbed me of the motivation to get out in the world and make some real friendships with people who were a part of my day-to-day life 
Liz is starting to realize this stuff with sobriety. Mm-hmm. So on April 1st, Liz celebrates her first year of sobriety, which is a milestone. Very on good. That day, she cries, which is understandable. It's been a long year, long, hard year. Mm-hmm. She actually gets in contact with her old high school sweetheart, Ben. You remember him? This was the kid that she wanted to marry when she was in high school. She just wanted to marry and start having kids. And he lived in San Francisco and was recently divorced. They started seeing each other long distance. This was about the same time Ted jumped out of a courthouse window in Aspen and escaped into the wilderness of Colorado. So kind of an interesting time. Mm-hmm. He didn't try to contact Liz. I'm sure it was probably because he was lost in the Rockies somewhere. You think? <laughs> I don't know if they have pay phones out there. However, he finally contacts her after he's gone. And she told him as gently as she could, I don't think you should call me anymore. I don't want to be tied to you. I'm, I'm involved with someone now. However, as soon as she makes that damn decision to finally say, Ted Bundy, you are out of my life, Ben let her go too. And he said she had too many problems for him, which I'm assuming Ted is her baggage. Guess who she turns to for that love and understanding? Oh, it's heartbreaking. All right. As part of her recovery program, Liz makes amends with Angie. I think that's going to be critical. I'm really glad that happened. It felt good to have her closest confidant back. Angie had moved back to Ogden, their hometown in Utah, and they spent many hours on the phone getting to know each other again. Liz and Ted, unfortunately, maintained their phone conversation. And, fun fact, they were even in a two-person book club together. Now, I doubt they read True Crime, (laughs) right? They didn't have good snacks either, that's for sure. She never wanted to stop loving him, but she knew that it needed to happen, so she goes back to therapy. And the therapist gave her a questionnaire to fill out, and in addition, another copy for someone else to fill out, someone who knew her really well. So she gave the copy to Ted. And based on both of their responses, out of a room filled with 100 people, only one person would be more depressed than Liz. Utterly sad. Listen, I'm glad she's getting professional help. She should have stayed in therapy from the first moment it crossed her mind. Getting professional help doesn't mean you're weak. It means you need an objective ear, someone who understands how we can fool ourselves into making very poor, emotionally repetitive decisions, and how to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. That's the purpose there. Yes. So now it's Christmas time again before Liz went to Utah to be with her family, as she always does, and she received a letter from Ted. And it had some of the same things he'd written to her on previous occasions. Lovey-dovey bullshit. Uh-huh. There would never be goodbyes for them, that no matter what happened, he loved her. She began to think that her relationship with Ted would never end. And then New Year's Eve dawns. It's 1978. Liz is back home in Seattle when she receives a disturbing phone call from Bob Keppel. Ted's gone. He's got an eight-hour jump. No one knows where he is. I would be afraid if I were Liz. I would have shit my pants. Yep. Not gonna lie. This, this is not good news. No. Yeah. Ah, oh, Ted. He never regretted escaping in custody in Colorado. He was actually fairly pleased with himself about doing that. And since he had escaped once, he knew that he was going to do anything to obtain his freedom if another opportunity arose. So, lo and behold, he's gone. Bob Keppel told Liz, if you hear anything, you call me. 
Liz was actually afraid that he would come to her this time. She wasn't afraid the first time, but this time she was afraid, especially after the letters he had recently sent. And although she continued to still kind of believe that Ted wasn't capable of murder, it still didn't stop her from nailing her basement window shut. So that yeah. he obviously couldn't get in. She thought about the conversations that they had in recent months. And one thing that stuck out to her was he spoke briefly about sex and how he obviously had not been with a woman in a while. But he had gotten weird about it. They always talked a lot. And obviously we know Liz thought Ted was super smart. But the conversation was discombobulated. He wasn't himself. And he also wrote when she spoke about being afraid to start new relationships with other people and maintain them. He said, I have known people who radiate vulnerability. Hint, hint, Liz, that might be one that Mm -hmm. he thinks of you. Mm -hmm. But he says, their facial expressions say, I am afraid of you. These people invite abuse by expecting to be hurt. Do they subtly encourage it? Interesting letter, Ted. Well, he's not responsible. The, the victims, they're, they're wearing a sign on their faces, please abuse me. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. And she still continues to believe, obviously, that he didn't do the things that they said that he did, but she really, really wished that he hadn't said that. Listen, he can try to justify leaving a trail of bodies behind him all he wants. They did not invite him to murder them. He chose this behavior, not mm-hmm. those who were attacked. I, he's, he's stupid. He's gross. But, you know, at some point, the authorities begin to believe, hey, Ted's not going to come here. He's not going to come to Liz. He's too well-known in Seattle. He's just not going to come back here. And even though they think that the Seattle police still cruise her neighborhood nightly, they tell her, hey, if you're in trouble, open the blinds in the front window to let them know that you need help. And the first time that he escaped, she was a little bit happy about it, especially since he'd become like some folk hero or something, hiding out like Johnny Appleseed or something. In the middle oh, of the woods. Now she was just afraid. And she really just struggled mostly with her gut feelings. Her brain and heart just couldn't get in line. And it was around this time that she met Hank. He was also a recovering alcoholic. They at least had that in common. Not much else, I don't believe. But he also made her feel safe. And that was what was really important right now. Especially when she didn't feel safe. Yeah, this is a tumultuous time here. And she's still new to recovery, so she's still in a vulnerable position. So the FBI is now involved, especially since they believe that Ted has fled across state lines. And they warned Liz that she would be guilty of aiding and abetting and would go to prison if she helped Ted. Now, she's not stupid, and she is afraid, so she's not going to do that. She had called the police on Ted multiple times with her concern, so why would she start helping him Now, they did want to speak with Molly alone. Had Ted ever touched her in a bad way? Had he spoken dirty to her? Liz is wondering, what the hell are they trying to find out, and what does this have to do? And thankfully, I don't think they had those anatomically correct dolls at this point, before the satanic. (laughs) Really? Anyway, Liz told them that when they found him, he would be on a university campus, because that's where he was most comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in mid-January, Liz opens a newspaper and she sees the horrific front-page story. A man had broken into a sorority house at Florida State University, raping and murdering two young women, in addition to savagely beating others while they slept. The same feeling she had when she was first handed the sketch of Ted back in 1974 now came back as she stared at that front-page newspaper. And she instinctively knew it was him. Even her mother called her later that day, saying a man from the FBI had called her. 
And even before anything else, she saw that same newspaper article and told the FBI guy, hey, call down to Florida. That's Ted. He's there. Even Bob Keppel had the same thought. Keppel even asked Liz if they can put a trap on her phone. It can tell you where calls are coming from, but now it was being said like a tap would. So trap the location, tap would record conversation. And she did have a feeling that Ted was going to call at some point because he just had an app for doing so. And she agreed to have this trap put on her phone. It had not been installed yet, but sure enough, Ted called on Thursday, February 16th, 1978. And Molly was actually the one to accept the call. She didn't know what else to do, but she was really upset and waiting for Liz to come home to take the phone. He was crying because he'd been caught. And her worst feel was realized when she asked where he'd been arrested. He says Pensacola, Florida. Mm. He should have been anywhere other than Florida from Liz's point of view. And he wanted her to be prepared. The fallout of this was going to be ugly. And he says, I wish we could sit down alone and talk about things with nobody listening about why I am the way I am. And she asked, are you telling me you're sick? He changes directions, like, back off. He comes back and says, I meant how come I've hurt you so many times? Mm-hmm. She was startled, but didn't say anything. Ted completely switches gears. How's your love life? They talk about his escape. Her fear seeming a little unreasonable now. Wait, what? It, everything's back to normal now? Yep. He even asked to speak with Hank, this guy that Liz had begun to date, to make sure that he was taking care of Liz and Molly. I just wish I knew why Liz kept entertaining his bullshit. Listen, she's not fully processing that he's a cold-blooded murderer. That sliver of doubt still remains. And she's got to integrate this new reality into the old one. And it's still incredibly difficult to to do so when it's still wrapped around in a strong emotion like love. The old information interferes with processing the new information and the new reality. It's not like you could just hit save and it's all updated. I mean, I wish the human brain worked that way, but it just you know, doesn't. would be so much easier. Oh, it, well, yeah. But we just don't work like the computers we've created. I wish... Ted had been playing with the cops for a few days. They didn't know who they had. Liz called the FBI to find out if Ted was a suspect in the murders down in Florida. And the agent that she spoke with, Dave Kelly, was surprised to learn that Ted was even in custody. That's amazing to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's in custody? Really? Uh, Wait, where? Believe it or not, back then there was a heck of a lot easier to escape and remain anonymous. Ted had grown a beard, so he looked somewhat different. He finally told them who he was so that he could make these phone calls to Liz. Both Hank and Molly had said that she should stop picking up the phone. Uh, Yeah. I understand. And she knew down deep that they were right, but she couldn't help it. She still felt sorry for him. So it was 2 a.m. on a Saturday when Ted calls her next. I want to talk about uh, what we were talking about on Thursday. What, about being sick? Yes, I, I have a responsibility to those who have suffered, and I want to reconcile those things. Liz starts taking notes. Thank goodness she grabbed that pad. Yeah. Ted asks her a serious question. Did you think it was possible that he could be responsible for all the horrible things they said about him? Now, Liz is still in conflict and she has her doubts, but she just couldn't accept it. She does acknowledge to Ted that she was afraid at times that he hated her and that he would kill her. And he said to her, no, no, it, it wasn't you. It was, it was me. Probably the most honest thing he's ever said to her. Probably. I I fought it for a long, a long, long time, but it just got too strong. 
We just happened to be going together when it got underway. I tried. Believe me, I tried. I tried to suppress it. That's why I didn't do well at school. My time was being used trying to make my life look normal. And then tells Liz, essentially, ask me anything. So the first thing that Liz tries to ask about is the Florida murders. Ted's immediate reaction, ah, Liz, I can't talk about that. I mean, he's right. It's an active investigation. He's still trying to cover his tracks. But go on. Anything else? And the first question she does ask is, did you ever want to kill me? Well, there was one time. Just that one, one time. time. Just that, that and, one. And it's, it's not the time that he pushed her off the raft. <laughs> and so Ted tells her of the time that he did try to kill her. He had spent the night at her place, and he closed the damper to the chimney so that smoke couldn't escape. He also put a towel in the crack at the bottom of the door just to ensure that the smoke was going to stay in the apartment. And now... This is something that Liz had never really brought up earlier in the book, so it's something that we can't go back and connect the dots to, but Liz states she does remember this night well. She had been really drunk, and they had fallen asleep together on the hideaway bed in front of the fireplace, and she remembers waking up as Ted was leaving that morning, and he had just said that he was going to run to his apartment to get the fan as the fireplace appeared to be backed up. And after some time, she still tries to go back to sleep, but she wakes up because she can't breathe. She gets up, she opens all the windows, letting all the smoke out, basically, like, hacking up a long... Mm -hmm. Surprise, Ted never came back with a fan. She really let him have it that time, but, I mean, now looking back in retrospect, she realizes, obviously, he was really trying to kill her. But when you look at this particular murder attempt, it doesn't fit with everything else, especially when we know what he's done. Like, this is a soft attempt to kill someone, I would say, for him. Oh, and I don't know if it was like trying to be a mercy killing, perhaps. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's like he wanted to, but didn't want to. But he wanted it to be a murder where it didn't appear to be a murder. He didn't want to strangle her. He didn't want it anything like that. If anything, it was an accident. Rule number one of serial killing, don't kill someone you know. Yep. I think that this might have been a time to save her feelings, especially since there might have been more, more serious attempts to kill her like that the time that he pushed her off the raft. And who knows? I mean, we know he left when he was having these murder searches. So she also tells him that she felt like he used her to touch base with reality. And we spoke a lot about that in part one, too, about becoming part of the family unit for a bit of normalcy. And, you know, Ted did agree. He knew he didn't have blackouts. He didn't have a split personality. And once he killed, the urge was just gone. And he could go back. He reset, go back to being normal. What's also interesting in this conversation is that Liz tells him that the police are saying these murders started in 1969. That's the year that they met. So what kickstarted it? You know, Ted doesn't say anything about that specifically, but he says the police are years off. Years off. Does that mean he started earlier or that he started in 1974? There's really no elaboration on this, but we know better, at least with hindsight. All right, he goes on to say, I have a sickness, a disease like your alcoholism. You can't take another drink. And with my sickness, there is something that I just can't be around. And I know that now. Liz asks him what that is. And he says, don't, don't, don't make me say it. Ever the drama king. Make him say it. You're being truthful at this point. It's about time. Make him say it. Make him say it. Oh, if I could have been that little voice whispering in her ear. Make him say it. Go ahead. Keep probing. Keep probing. 
All right. So she said that he was doing the right thing and accepting responsibility and owning up to what he had done. And she also says she'll only be able to visit him maybe once or twice, but she would most certainly pray for him. It's very Mormon of her, and I do mean that sincerely because I do have Mormons in the family. Now, she would learn later that he killed 12-year-old Kimberly Leach while he was in Florida, and she is the same age as her daughter Molly. Ted tried repeatedly during their conversation. Ted had repeatedly said during their last conversation that she need never worry about him hurting Molly or Liz, even though he did admit to trying to kill her. And now this. He had killed this 12-year-old little girl. Now she knew that she didn't understand, nor would she pretend to understand Ted. Not now, not then, not ever. Patient facts. Yeah. Now Liz goes on, and she asks us to picture Mount St. Helens back when it erupted in 1980, the destruction and the devastation. For us laid bare, everything covered in ash and dust. A barren landscape, apocalyptic. That was exactly how she felt when she made the realization that her Ted was a horrific murderer responsible for snuffing out the lives of these young, vibrant, selfless women. And she's not wrong when she says that the fury of whatever plagued Ted has destroyed a beautiful man and taken many, many lives with it. However, we do ask ourselves, did it destroy a man or did that man never really exist? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. If anyone wants to send in their hypothetical answers to us, we would greatly appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please do. Yeah. And, you know, as the years go on, Liz feels that she's in an all-out battle for her very soul. This included her sobriety, her sanity, her very livelihood, being able to take care of Molly. And her spirituality became one of the anchors tethering her back down to earth to her family and to Molly. And she knew that one glass of wine would lead. She knew where it was going to take her. And therefore, since she went to AA, she hadn't touched a drop. Now, keep in mind, she's writing this for publication in 1981. Ted was caught for the last time in 1978. She's had a few years to process her thoughts. And in coming to terms with herself, she still sickened by it. And I know we're all going to be shocked and surprised. After Ted told Liz that he was going to make things right where he essentially confessed to her, he turned tail and did none of it. I'm shocked. I know. Stop the presses, you know. Can you feel my sarcasm across Skype? (laughs) Yeah. It's just awful. He laid the burden on Liz to deal with just as he always had. However, Liz did the right thing. She went to Kings County Police and she gave them a statement of the phone call in which he had taken the notes good for her, and mm-hmm. Detective Keppel and Captain Mackey. And then we inquired as to the questions that Liz had asked. She said that Keppel was up in arms. I'm like, what? Jill's like, what? What do you mean he's up in arms? Keppel says, what? What? Why didn't you ask him about what happened to Janet Ott's bite? Or where, where Debbie Kent is? Well, duh, Bob. She's not a police officer. You know, she's in an intimate relationship with Ted and wants to know about their relationship. She's not a detective. She's not concerned about figuring out all the tiny little details that are lightening the minds of officers. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's her relationship. This is, she's dealing with her agenda and her welfare and her daughter. She's finally gotten to a point where she can deal with her needs. Her needs. Finally. 
After seven freaking years, she's finally dealing with her needs. And I'm sorry that Bob Keppel doesn't agree. And Bob Keppel does get his time to ask Ted hundreds of questions and lay it out in about 600 pages of a book. Oh, yes, he sure does. So at this point, though, Liz doesn't hear from Ted until May, which is a few months later. And he told Liz that his horoscope had told him that this would be a day for jealousy, which triggered his call to Liz, and he asked her about her love life and if she was getting married. But the conversation turns to him, and he was staying... Well, of course it does. He's his his favorite person in the world. And he's staying mentally fit in prison, reading, writing to pass the time. He's trying to fall into their old pattern of conversation. And Liz interrupted. You go, girl. Uh Uh, By telling him that she's more or less shocked that he had done nothing in atonement for the atrocities he'd committed. (laughs) Ha-ha. Yeah. Yeah. He skirts around this issue by saying that this has been a turbulent time for him, escaping, living on the lamb, getting caught again, and new developments had risen that would make it inopportune for him to take action that he intended. Uh-huh. For Liz, that just meant, um, I hadn't meant to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, with sobriety came a clear, level-headed Liz, who started not taking his shit. Good for you. She said he knew she wasn't going to be standing behind him anymore. Maybe someone else would. For example, Carol Boone, who he would later marry during his trial. Grandstanding. Mm-hmm. She said she still didn't have the strength to tell him not to call her anymore, but defaulted to Hank, who said he wouldn't like it. So at least she did take a stand. She really didn't want him in her life anymore, and she had finally had enough. And in the end of June, Liz got a letter from Ted. And it was a strange one because it had actually been addressed to Carol Boone, who had forwarded to Liz with a light-hearted cover letter. Interesting. I would have known what that cover letter had said. I'm sure it would have been an interesting read. Oh, yeah. But Ted wanted to let her know that he had heard she had gone to the police and said some not-so-nice things about him. And I'll read it verbatim here. From a purely factual perspective, The reports filtering back to me reveal what you allegedly told these people and what I told you over the phone that night from Pensacola are two very different accounts. I still cannot imagine you broadcasting the conversation we had. While I will not pretend to be Prince Charming, I do think it fair to say that for two and a half years now, I have done everything to keep your name out of the news and avoid embarrassment for you. Several friends and reporters have called me a fool since they believe that you were in some way responsible for the things that were happening to me. But if you did, <laughs> sorry. But if you did go to the police, I'm trying to be dramatic here, Jill. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you did go to the police, you went to them thinking they might be able to use what you thought you had heard. What if, dear Elizabeth, the King County authorities were desperate enough to charge me based on your representations? Do you want to hurt me so badly that you would twist the truth to see me swing from some wooden beam by my neck? All I'm saying is that you could have gotten yourself much hot water, and you are fortunate that what you thought you had was of no value to the police. You did what I've been told you did. You were not thinking of your welfare or Molly's or your parents or your life. Certainly sounds like a damn threat to me, huh? Oh, yeah. I would have turned that over to the police and said, he's threatening me. Mm-hmm. He's threatening me. Like it. What but an you know, ass. Hey, hang on. This this letter was a mistake. He didn't mean to send it. 
Nope. Not even a little bit. For an ally in Liz after all this time. And she didn't fall for it, even though she felt extremely low and guilty, considering all that she had done, even though it was well-intentioned. And after that, this was a phone call that he had made to her to say he was sorry about the letter being sent. It was the shortest conversation they ever had, and it was going to be their last. Well, sending the letter was a mistake. It still was sent. Mm-hmm. She on yep. She it on He threatened the shit out of her. It's funny, though. He knew she had gone to the cop. He didn't know what she had actually said. Right. So being with Ted and learning who he truly was affected Liz in more ways than one. She wrote that her view of people had ultimately changed and was grim. She struggled with what human beings could do to one another. It made it understandably harder to get closer to people. Liz also had to deal with people like reporters investigators, authors, you name it, coming into her personal life and trying to deal with all the details of her life with Ted Bundy. Her one downfall was that she read everything she could about Ted, perhaps to understand him in a way, even though she knew she wouldn't. So she's reading everything, trying to understand, but you're never going to understand. She now readily admits that she wanted to give Ted the keys. Here, take care of me. She wanted stability, a loving home like that of her parents, married with more kids, a sibling or two for Molly. Ted Ted had done everything to her. When I felt his love, I was on top of the world. When I felt nothing from Ted, I felt that I was nothing. While many a time when he was cold, it was often due to another woman. Liz often wonders if maybe he was trying to keep the monster away from her. Oh, I think she's right. I think she's definitely right, even though he did try to kill her a couple times. Mm-hmm. But it seems like I said, it was a very different way of trying to kill her than everyone else that he killed. Yep. And for Liz, the most painful thing that she found, she wrote after preparing to publish the new edition, was the last line of the story, which read, The tragedy is that this warm and loving man was driven to kill. She said she felt like ripping that damn page right out of the book. Yeah. I would. It's but, terrible. You know, I mean, she was writing from a very different standpoint, obviously, and with time, counseling, and sobriety, she came to understand why she wrote that and ultimately why she left it. That last sentence was a frame of mind. She was still avoiding the truth at that time, that he was a rageful, sexual deviant who acted out his murderous fantasies, and we strongly believe without remorse whatsoever. Mm -hmm. She began to accept this in putting her picture of Ted her actual idea of Ted next to the real Ted. And she lists a few of the facts in the story. She says, He abducted and killed two women in one day and then took me out to dinner that evening. He raped and murdered women and then slept with me. He took my visiting family out for a fun evening of pizza. He then excused himself, went to a bar in South Seattle, found a young woman and murdered her. The cold, hard truth of it all is so unfathomable and appalling that she doesn't understand why it took her so long to accept it. And it's because she loved him. And Liz understands that her version of hard is nothing compared to the families who continue to grieve for their lost loved ones. That line we read earlier, the tragedy is that this warm and loving man is driven to kill, she says should read, the tragedy is that this violent and manipulative man directed his murderous rage at innocent young women to satisfy his insane urges. And this, good for you, Liz, really good for you, 
Mm-hmm. Now that he's dead, I would add, compounding the tragedy, he only told the truth, and then only partly when he thought it was a bargaining chip to prolong his life. And by acknowledging this, she gets her life back. Yeah, absolutely. She's she's getting it. Took time, counseling, and distance. Yes. She Lots had to distance. distance herself from that time period, and she had to move away from it chronologically. And we can't can't rush time. Yeah. Can't just say, oh, I wish it was five years from now. You have to go through it. So when Ted was executed, yay, January 24th, 1989, the day remains a void for Liz. Side note, yes, the Burn Bundy Burn t-shirts are still available on Etsy. Just Google it and they do pop right up. How much are they? I think they were under $20. Okay, I need to get that one in addition to my Joe Exotic t-shirt yep. that I found. It says, Walmart meat truck pizza <laughs> didn't kill anybody, but Carol Baskin sure did. <laughs> That's terrible. All right, so Ted's execution day is a void for Liz. Liz hoped that his death brought closure to the loved ones of his victims. However, it didn't necessarily signal the end for her as well. People still wanted to know, did she think that Ted Bundy loved her and Molly? Yes, she does. But who could really know, especially with all she knew after the fact? He had tried to kill her at least once. He did kill two young girls. He could have also been using them as a front for normalcy, which you know we've theorized a few times. How could she stay in a relationship, even with her doubts, even after going to the police? Simple. She thought she was wrong. She was an emotional wreck, an alcoholic. God, she wanted to be wrong. She loved him as the simple truth, even as many people may find it strange. You know. So how did Liz go about rebuilding her life after Ted was convicted in Florida? Utah would be as bad a setting as Seattle, and she did contemplate moving. She was depressed. Making a decision such as moving would have been just too much. So she really liked the job she did have, and her boss, we know, had been very supportive throughout this whole thing. Very um, supportive. Right. Uh, most of her coworkers had been there since the beginning, so she does decide to stay in Seattle. And by the time the original book was published in 1981... She had already married and divorced Hank. So with trust and intimacy issues, relationships weren't really working for her. And Hank was her last go at being a married woman. She's just happier being single. I could see it. Yeah, dating a serial killer and nearly marrying a serial killer. I could see why you might have to say, you know, marriage, not not this lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, and just with the way that Ted emotionally manipulated her, I don't, think that she would ever get that high of being Mm -mm. number one in anyone else's eyes. So I could totally see that. A final note from Liz before we get to Molly's story. The latest edition of the saga of Liz's relationship with Ted Bundy. She says, I don't have an earthly explanation for what occurred starting that July 1974 when my co-worker handed me that newspaper composite. I saw that it did look slightly like my Ted. I immediately felt as if an unbearable weight had fallen on me. I tried to dismiss my concerns, but I couldn't. The more information that was revealed about the suspect, the more I worried. I was sure my fears were irrational, but still, I couldn't stay silent. Then when the police told me he wasn't their man, I tried to accept it, but I couldn't. There was no way I would ever contact the police again, but I did. Ted would have eventually have been caught, 
but her gut feeling certainly kept him on the radar. Trust your gut. She knew. She did know. That's why she kept going back. She knew. She just wasn't confident in her knowledge. Now we'll move on to Molly's story, Liz's daughter. Molly begins with, I can't remember how I felt to love him. This is where Molly starts trying to put the pieces together, what she remembers about growing up with Ted Bundy. As she learned of the man that he was, she also lost her faith in humanity, as well as God. That's pretty profound. In telling her story, just as Liz had, she's able to rebuild her life and come to terms with the man they thought they knew and loved, who turned out to be a monster. She knows that, for her mother, this is harder to accept, that this couldn't possibly be real. Liz was an adult, and she had a capacity to build and retain more memories than Molly did as a child, meeting Ted at such a young age. But she knew that Liz wasn't imagining this love. It was real, and she felt it through the multitude of letters that had been written by Ted throughout the years. However, she knows that she and her mom are lucky that they didn't have to grieve for the loss of each other. But as Molly grew older, she began to grieve for the loss of Ted's victims. She says, I have been sickened and depressed by what happened to them at the hands of someone who chose to make me a pet instead of another victim. A pet. Mm -hmm. She views herself as Ted's pet. That's just, that's shattering. And it's very apparent throughout the book, too. I think it's just some of those things that you catch on, but until she actually says it, like, that's really what probably was to him. Snapped it right into reality. (sighs) And so Molly goes on to explain that the move to Seattle was hard for both Liz and her. I mean, they had grown up around her family. They are now separated. It was just her and Liz. And like her mom, Molly was also really shy. She didn't really have many playmates until Ted came into their lives. He was that shining light for them. She explains he knew exactly how to win her over, exactly what to do to make her laugh, singing in a falsetto to songs on the radio, mimicking favorite cartoon characters. You know, one would think that these were hardly the actions of a psychopath or a madman. And when Liz was overwhelmed with her day-to-day from work, Ted had boundless energy to play with Molly, swinging her around, having tickle fights, you name it. He was their guy, and they were lucky that he was theirs. And Molly said he eagerly stepped into the role of boyfriend, father figure, protector, and guide for our new life in Seattle. And Molly recalls actually an interesting incident shortly after Ted and her mom started dating. She was being a brat, as young children are wont to do. That does happen, yep. Yep, and, you know, Ted outlined a plan to deal with it. I mean, he's not the father, but he takes the wheel. Liz wants this. She doesn't want to always be in control, so she went along with it. And Ted told Liz that if Molly was going to be rude and mouth off to her, they should just completely ignore her, pretend like she wasn't there. They would stop talking to Molly and refer to her as the child. It's not not baby Yoda, but the child. Mm -hmm. And then if the child apologizes and stops behaving that way, then we will speak to her again. I'm surprised he used the, the term her as opposed to it in this particular instance, but semantics. And because Molly was afraid of being alone at this point, because Liz and Ted were all she had, she quickly became a poster child for good. He did have psychology. Remember, he studied yeah. psychology. It sure it included child sight. So he did know what he was doing there. And that was the same psych professor who said, hey, that sketch looks a little bit like my student. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Mm. Oh. Just as quickly as these incidents occurred, things would go back to fun and games. Molly described Ted as magical. He could run faster and jump higher than anyone she had ever seen. She noticed that he was almost animal-like in the way he connected with his body. Perhaps like a predator? The example she tells is when Ted was seated with his back to the kitchen window, and a radio fell off the ledge behind him, and without turning his head or moving his body, he stuck out his hand behind him and, boom, caught it. Did he have eyes in the back of his head? That's impressive to a small child. You know, it, it was magical. She also remembers an incident where Ted ran off after someone who stole a purse from a woman when they were at the mall. Everyone else was oblivious to what was happening, except Ted. And he even made a citizen's arrest. Now, in hindsight, she knows this is because he was watching. He was stalking. He was looking. And head on a swivel, eyes scanning for a possible victim. Now, there were a few times Molly recalls where she feels that Ted had actually been trying to hurt her. Remember, Ted always said that Liz and Molly never had to worry. But at this point, we all know better. There was still plenty of danger. We know the incident when they were at the lake and Molly was swimming behind the raft. It was similar to the time when Ted pushed Liz off the raft and into the river. Both remember his eyes. For Molly, it was the first time she ever saw those eyes, dead and filled with hatred, but it wouldn't be the last. Ted gaslit Liz for years, but he also did the same thing to Molly. Ted loved me. Why would he try to hurt me? I must be overreacting. I, it has to be Molly. It couldn't be Ted. Ted was fun. Yet there would be these abrupt body checks that would knock her to the ground, a football thrown directly in the face. Again, his innocent explanations were easy to accept as fact. So Molly was the one who was wrong. She should have caught the ball. She, you know, she was the one who was wobbly on her feet. Because mm-hmm. Ted loved her. Yep, and Liz and Molly were always in the wrong. They were overreacting. They were just balls of stress, apparently. Yep. And then there was the time when Molly was seven and Ted was babysitting her while Liz was out. They were playing hide-and-go-seek in the dark of the apartment. She found him curled up on the floor underneath a blanket. She goes to pull the blanket off, and she yells, You're naked. Molly's smile turned upside down. Ted explained, I can turn invisible, but my clothes can't. I didn't want you to see me. Confused, but still young enough to maybe not comprehend the situation completely, still kind of knowing things were wrong, but still wanting to play the game, she decided that she didn't want to be it. So they both start running back to home base, which was in the shower, which was in the bath by the shower, and they both arrived at the same time, Ted falling down to the floor, covering himself up with both hands. And they're kind of planning, like grabbing at each other. She's still kind of weirded out by it, but she pulls his hands away. And when she does, he has an erection. And this is something she has never seen before. She doesn't have brothers. She's not living with her dad. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no other dudes in her life. And innocently enough, she asks, does it hurt? And looking back up into his eyes, she realized that something was very, very wrong. She recalled his pupils shrinking almost to, like, pinpricks to the point where she couldn't see them. And one was looking slightly off in another direction. Honestly, I don't even know how that happened. But the Ted she knew was slipping away. And she said, then he wasn't there anymore. But I saw something new seeing me. Something dangerous. Oh, that poor child. She is in the lion's cage. 
She just instinctively knew. Trust that gut again. She knew something bad. This is not Ted. This is where it gets a little bit spiritual, but seriously, thank God, no pun intended. She recalls a lesson at church where she was told that during times of danger, the Holy Ghost might speak to her to help her and tell her what to do. And that's what Molly felt in that moment when her friend Ted was gone. It was sort of like a voice inside her head that was telling her what to do. It said, go ahead, laugh, smile, pretend like nothing's wrong. Tell them you love them, but tell them you've had a lot of fun. You're tired now. And it worked. Ted came back from wherever it was he had gone. He accepted that she was tired. But now, he was going to read stories to her, because he didn't want the fun time to <sighs> Molly writes that her memory is fragmented when it becomes to this particular incident. But he crawled up on top of her bunk with her, and he sat behind her reading a book. And the next thing she knows, her sheet is all wet, and she thought he had peed. And she kept pretending to act like nothing was wrong. And when he finally left the room, she laid down, praying to God that he wouldn't come back. And thankfully, he did not. Now, she never told Liz what had happened. They both loved Ted, and Molly didn't want him to get into trouble. So she kept it to herself, but she no longer trusted him around her. He had always been very physical with her carrying her, swinging her around, tickling her. But now things were different, and she was very aware that the way he touched her sometimes was inappropriate. And she, a little girl, is trying to limit that. Liz had even yelled at him for it at once. He would carry Molly in a sort of, like, crotch hold, and a couple times his fingers had slid inside her underwear, touching her. But still, Molly would push these to the side because she wanted everything to be all right again. What a skeevy son of a bitch. He is disgusting. Ugh. And when the profile of Ted came out in the paper, Molly teased Ted. You have the same name. You have the same car. He laughed it off. But when Ted was arrested, again, not funny games. And Liz finally admitted to Molly that she felt Ted could be guilty of these crimes. And while this might have been a shock to Molly, like Liz, she tried to hold on to the fact that she believed he was innocent even after all of these things. She even gathered up her friends to advise on the situation. If they had any questions and they wanted to know the truth, then you come to me, Molly. When he escaped from prison the first time, it was as if he was some sort of folk hero. She felt it was all a mistake. Yeah. You know, adults understand the world as this array of black and white with all these shades of gray complexity in between. And children often don't get these nuances You know, they'll often like somebody completely or hate you. Their world is very black and white. So Molly loved Ted, you know, much like Liz did in that that extreme sense. So it's going to take her some time to change her perception of him. But she's going to change faster than Liz does because of those lack of nuancing there. And months later, when Ted escaped from prison again, this is where she feels differently. and She's scared. And by this point, the evidence mounted against Ted is very apparent. He's convicted of murder. What if he came for them? What if he figured out that Liz had gone to the police with her suspicions? When he was caught, there was obviously relief. And the 12-year-old Molly watched Ted's trial play out on television, and she began to struggle with her own inner turmoil, knowing he was the monster that everyone said he was, and that another young girl, Kimberly Beach, a girl her own age was raped, killed, and mutilated. And it's only very recently that Molly has been able to keep those brutal details 
from playing regularly in her mind. Like Liz, she continues to grieve for those women who have lost their lives to this man who turned out to be a deranged monster. Yeah. The day of Ted's execution, Molly remembers nothing, just like her mom. It's a blank void. Molly confessed to Liz that she received a letter a few days before he was set to die, but Molly burned it in the fireplace. Had she robbed her mother of some closure to this part of her life? Maybe, but she says, as for robbing Ted of his precious Liz, not sorry, not sorry one bit. I honestly would have taken him out back and shot him myself rather than let him hurt one more person. And I love that line from her. I mean, she really came to accept facts. And she does go on to rebuild her life. I mean, she has some of the same troubles that Liz had. She even goes to a victim group, and she tries to listen to some of the family members talk about their their grief and their loss. They weren't her family members, but she's living it. She experienced something akin to living with this monster. And she actually gets kicked out of one of the victim groups because they figure out her connection. She wasn't a victim. She lived with this animal. So you can understand where their frustration came from with that. But one of the victim's mothers actually wrote a note to Molly, and that started kind of giving her the closure that she needed. And she even went to Lake Sammamish and started hiking the trails just to kind of be in that space and not let what Ted had done control her anymore for the rest of her life. She had to take back. She did. Yeah. Well, after years of drug and alcohol abuse, not uncommon for people who suffer trauma, Molly's now celebrating 13 years of sobriety as the republication of the book is going on. We should close with Molly's words, her mantra. He's crazy, and being sane, you will never understand crazy. Just give up, live your life, you still have it, it's a gift. Yep. Those are very true words. Yep. The only real thing you can do. Yep. You're not going to get crazy. Stop trying to. Go have fun. Yeah. That concludes part two of our three-part series on The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Liz Kendall. Join us next time for part three, where we're really going to take a deep dive into the victims and who they really were, and ultimately what the world lost because Ted Bundy decided to stamp out their light. If you want to get a head start on our next book, which we'll be doing throughout May, pick up your copy of Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber. This is about a man named Charlie Cullen, who was a trusted medical professional tasked with upholding an ethical responsibility for those entrusted into his care. However, Charlie had a dark side, a chilling dark side that is apparent from the very beginning. Even more horrifying than a man who may have committed as many as 400 murders is the fact that the healthcare system allowed him to get away with it to move from hospital to hospital almost more easily than it takes for the rest of us to apply, interview, and get hired for jobs. For a career that spans 16 years across nine hospitals within our area, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, you'll be reading long into the night, taking in the detail and depravity of a man who killed without reason, but simply to extinguish a compulsion that he had. And thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We'd be happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts from our readings into the show. Follow us and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean, and let our episodes pop right out on your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. 
Every little thing you do helps us to keep going further. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading, stay inside, be safe, and mask if necessary. Bye! Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved.